Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sensual fleas remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. So, an apology from Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister told an angry House of Commons he had attended a Downing Street garden party during a lockdown in 2020. He may have brought himself a bit of breathing space, but simmering disquiet within the Conservative Party means his grip on power is weaker now than it was just a few days ago. Mr Speaker, I want to apologise. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through. Well, following his mere culpa moment, most Tory MPs interviewed by Bloomberg said they would wait for the findings of a probe by civil servant Sue Gray before deciding on any next steps. It would take 54 MPs writing to the 1922 committee to trigger a vote on the Prime Minister's future. But the list of possible signees is starting to stack up. Among the Tories publicly calling for his resignation, a Scottish leader, Douglas Ross, along with MPs Roger Gale, Will Rag and Caroline Noakes. With the Prime Minister's position remaining precarious, one of his Cabinet colleagues faces a difficult choice in resetting the post-Brexit talks over Northern Ireland. Meanwhile, here's Bloomberg's Hannah George. Do you pick a fight with the European Union to please the Conservative Party faithful or cut a deal to avert a trade war? That's the dilemma facing the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, who meets with her European counterpart Maros Sefcovic today. The UK wants fundamental changes to the Northern Ireland Protocol and how it is overseen, while the EU has offered limited concessions around the customs burden facing traders moving goods across the Irish Sea. While Truss's first talk since taking on the mantle of lead Brexit negotiator have been billed as a reset, following a tougher line against the EU would strengthen her position should she throw her hat in the ring for a leadership challenge against Boris Johnson. Well, let's bring in our first guest for the day, Graham Stringer, Labour MP for Blakely and Broughton in Greater Manchester. Graham, thanks so much for joining us on the programme today. Now, Keir Starmer and other opposition politicians say that Boris Johnson should resign. Do you think he actually will? Uh, I don't think he will last very long, is my answer to that. I don't think he will resign immediately. Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. Uh, because he can persuade people to vote Conservative that no other uh, Conservative leader has managed to do in recent times. So he's won seats that have been Labour for generations. Uh, It looks to me as though he's lost that ability to uh, get support uh, from previous Labour voters. I think the test for him will come. There are local elections on the first Thursday in May. If Conservative candidates do badly in that, then I think there will be sufficient Conservatives who say, 
uh, you've got to go and there will be a vote of confidence which uh, he will lose. So you think May will be the, the real crunch point for the Prime Minister? The, the, yes, the, the, that, that will be the test. The election, the election is his real test. Hmm. The, the, the people of Salford don't much like the Tories uh, anyway, I think it's probably fair to say. What, what do you think the, uh, the feeling is uh, amongst your constituents? Do you think they're, they're, they're not really surprised at these allegations or are, are, they, are they genuinely shocked? They're not, they're not surprised that the Prime Minister of uh, our country uh, is a hypocrite and a liar. Very sadly, uh, that position has been established some time ago. Uh, he has survived in the way that uh, naughty children survive at the back of a classroom by a certain amount of charm and being able to uh, achieve things that his predecessors had failed to do, like getting out of the European uh, Union, winning elections. I think the people I talk to in, in Manchester and Salford are horrified that when they couldn't visit... Uh, relatives in, in care homes, when some of them couldn't visit dying relatives uh, in, in order to say uh, goodbye. Boris Johnson was partying with, with friends and colleagues in Number 10 Downing Street. I think they're genuinely angry and shocked at that level of uh, hypocrisy, telling people to do one thing with criminal consequences. I mean, this wasn't just telling people, there was the law, telling people to do one thing with criminal consequences, and he was doing exactly the opposite. He was having a good time at a drinks party uh, in the garden in Downing Street. Mm. And yet, despite that, a YouGov poll taken after the revelations, but before the apology, which found that six in ten people want Johnson to go, Looking at the voting intention numbers, Labour's on just 38%, barely moved since the last poll. It still feels like we're a long way from the days of Tony Blair as opposition leader when Labour was polling 45 or, or 50%, doesn't it? The last opinion poll that I know has been taken showed Labour uh, 10 points ahead, which is about where you would expect an opposition party to be in midterm. It's not as good as it should be in, in some ways, given what has happened. I, I accept that. And I think Keir Starmer, Labour's leader, has uh, created the necessary conditions uh, in order that Labour may win the next general election. But the, he's not yet done uh, sufficient to ensure that that outcome is likely. I think he has to talk to a number of uh, issues that uh, so far, he's not addressed in the kind of detail and effectiveness that will uh, shore up that opinion poll league. That includes immigration, it includes the future of taxation, and the huge taxation burden is going to be uh, if we, as we, uh, if we carry on heading to uh, net zero, and less substantially, but just as importantly some of the language around uh, the woke issues that traditional Labour voters uh, tend not to like. So you say Labour's position is not as good as it should be. Do you think that uh, Keir Starmer is too much of a, of a metropolitan liberal, to, to, to use a phrase? Uh, I wouldn't put it in those terms. And he, he was extraordinarily good in the House of Commons chamber in this. He got both the 
the mood right as well as uh, a forensic analysis of what uh, Johnson was saying and what he was doing. So he was very good yesterday and he has improved uh, within the Commerce Chamber since he's been uh, leader. He's not uh, really uh, come over to people who don't think about politics every day. Uh, he's not had the moment where they say, yeah, he's our, he's our guy, we want him uh, to be the next Prime Minister. People are giving him the benefit, benefit of the doubt. They think he's a decent guy, but he's not broken through yet, and he's got to do so. And do you think that's particularly a problem in those in those red wall seats uh, surrounding Greater Manchester, where uh, Labour did so badly last time? Um, it is a problem if you look at the results last time. If we're talking about opinion polls, the last opinion poll in those ex-Labour seats in uh, areas that used to have a, a strong industrial base and no longer uh, do have, the last poll done in those seats show Labour 16 percentage points ahead. And I suppose the way I would put that is people uh, are fed up with the Conservatives. And so that you know, there were still narrow wins for the Conservatives in those seats. So they've stopped supporting them. What we've not completely done is persuade them to vote enthusiastically for Labour. So when you get to less marginal seats, but the seats we need to win... Uh, we need to do better there. That's where we need to communicate. On the subject of energy bills, we've got a, a big, big rise in bills coming down the line uh, in just a few months' time. Labour have said they'd like to cut 5% VAT. Is that going to be enough for the people of Salford? Uh, it's a start. No, it isn't. Um, I, I, Labour said two things. One is the, uh, a cut in VAT, and the second is a windfall tax on the energy companies. Uh, because the energy companies have made money by doing nothing just because uh, the price of fossil fuels have uh, gone up. Uh, so I think both those things are a start. But at the moment, on domestic uh, fuel bills, there is about 25% uh, that's not to pay for the fuel, but is to pay uh, green levies to, to move to uh, other forms of uh, energy supply away from uh, fossil fuels. And I think that is not a sustainable position. And that is very difficult uh, for the Labour Party to change. But I think we have to change and say uh, people want a, a cleaner, better environment. Everybody wants that. Uh, but the actual cash charge for this at the moment is too high. On the issue of the Plan B restrictions, you're one of a small number of Labour MPs voting against vaccine passports. Why did you take that position? I'm against uh, a two-class uh, society. Uh, it would exclude uh, some people without the vaccine passports uh, from certain areas of activity. I think that's wrong. I think if people... I, I've, I'm triply vaccinated. I think people should get vaccinated. It's a defence against severe disease. It, it reduces transmission or doesn't stop it. So I think those two reasons. But there is a third significant reason. If, like I do, uh, you believe that more people should be vaccinated and it's good for them and good for society generally, then forcing people to do it is not necessarily the best way to do it. 
persuasion, uh, explaining the benefits to them and other people of doing it. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Well, let's get more on what's making news in the world of politics. Of that, I'm joined by Bloomberg's James Walcock, who has his ear, of course, to the ground in all things uh, Westminster. Now, James, the FT's Sebastian Payne tweeted that Sue Gray uh, won't finish an investigation into the Downing Street parties until uh, next week at the earliest. Now, talk us through what's next uh, for Johnson. So, I mean, this investigation, to sort of draw it back a bit, the reason why it matters so much is, to begin with, Sue Gray is the sort of mythical figure that Tory MPs have been tweeting about, this idea that this independent-minded civil servant will somehow put the issue to rest and put the, Johnson's career back in sort of good condition if after all these queries about it. So in many ways, uh, this investigation will settle the issue for Johnson one way or the other. If the Met sort of t- take it on and take, take it further, it would be, like a lot of Korean people have said, that's game over. And the other side of this is that if you look at sort of the Chancellor's tweets last night, it was quite clear that his support of the Prime Minister is conditional until this inquiry comes out. So officials have been steering us away from any expectation for this week. Like you just said, the FT said next week at the earliest. So in some ways, this is the next sort of ticking clock for how long Johnson may have left. That, that tweet from Sunak was, was pretty brutal, wasn't it, really? Uh, I mean, I'm sure his trip to Devon was, was long planned ahead. Uh, but it took him a long time to send it, didn't it? It did. It took eight hours. Um, there's some brilliant time timelines you can find. And he was one of the last cabinet ministers to express his support of Johnson. Following him an hour later was Liz Truss, another big front runner for the leadership. So I think... It weirdly reminds me of back in sort of Theresa May's sort of dog days. You started to see the cabinet ministers who were thinking about their own careers and thinking about potential succession plans starting to differentiate themselves and pull back their support. And that is another thing to sort of keep your eye out on over the next sort of few weeks. 
Just a quick one. Uh, uh, a big name from the pandemic playing field. Uh, Jonathan Van Tam is uh, is leaving leaving the match. Leaving the match, final whistle. Um, I wouldn't say red card, but well, the <laughs> University of Nottingham maybe have given him a red card because he left the Monster Common back in 2017. And now five years later, after having an extension, he's been drawn away. So it's not sort of a political move or anything. It's simply the case that after a very, very long pandemic, uh, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer has returned to sort of academia. And I'm sure we wish everyone wishes him all well. James, thanks so much. James uh, Walcott there was a a little bit of uh, background on the day's event. Now let's get more analysis with a friend of the programme, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Therese, thanks so much for joining us today. I read in your latest uh, piece, uh, you've written about the the succession uh, battle perhaps uh, kicking off. It was pretty painful, wasn't it, yesterday? A really, as you put it, uncharacteristic apology. He was was not enjoying himself yesterday, was he? No, he was had a very sort of sober... Uh, sobering tone, his body language, the body language of, you know, his own cabinet members and parties, by the way, was, you know, not terribly supportive either. I mean, they were all they were all masks. So you couldn't really, you know, see what the facial expressions were. But, you know, he, he normally you expect when the prime minister is standing at the dispatch box and defending himself that he gets a lot of support from the backbenches and certainly from his own cabinet. And there was just a sort of stony silence. And, um, you know, as James said, the uh, uh, the tweets of support from key cabinet members who are often mooted as potential replacements came very late in the day, looked quite conditional. So, you know, we, we keep saying he bought himself a bit of time. But it, you know, I think the question is, to what end? So far, the the actual list of people sticking their head above the parapet is it's still quite a short list, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, you know, some of the usual suspects, uh, like Roger Gales, who's, you know, been a a, a big critic of Johnson for some time, who said he's put in a letter, um, I think Caroline Noakes um, and William Ragg. So, I mean, there are some, I I think there are more voices now uh, saying that his position is either untenable or that pending this review, it might be. And that will give him pause. You know, that said, getting to 54 letters to the 19th. 1922 committee at this point, you know, that just still seems like a a big stretch for those who want to see him go. And the fact that you have the Liberal Democrats and the Labour and, you know, Labour Party now actively calling for his resignation, obviously the SNP, you know, that may just urge, you know, encourage Tories to rally behind their leader and at least see if he can pull one out of the hat yet again, um, as James says, by the next, you know, by the midterm elections. Uh, And I think part of this play for time is about seeing whether, you know, the the furore over this just dies down in the next week or so. I, I, I very much doubt it will. But one can never count out this prime minister. He has an uncanny way of of kind of resurrecting himself when you sort of think the situation is completely lost. Yeah, pretty, pretty. Teflon. How important is the Sue Gray investigation and what are the possible outcomes uh, and what could they mean for for Johnson? I think a lot depends on how you know, how how much she goes into sort of defining things like what is a party? Was it a party? How, you know, was he making judgments as opposed to just laying out the facts? Um, so that's one, on one level, uh, you know, the, the report itself could, um, you know, could simply lay out the facts that we already know or it could be more damning. The, the uh, potential for a police investigation, which I still sort of suspect isn't going to happen, but if that were to happen, um, you know, that, that could land him in a whole other sort of, you know, realm of trouble. 
I still think that the key question isn't really what's said in these reports, but whether his you know, party, his own backbench decides he's more of a liability um, than a meal ticket, as I wrote, um, and also whether they really, really think that one of the potential, you know, Boris Johnson replacements is going to be able to do what he did to carry on this legacy. That 2019 election victory was, it was a generational change for this party. He's remade what the Tories stand for. Um, it's a big, you know, ask for even a Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, who are popular with the grassroots party, to take that on. And I think that's what the Tory MPs will have to be asking themselves, are either of them, do they have the potential, the charisma, the instinct, the killer instinct to really take that mantle? Yeah, surely if you can get through those hurdles, then the May elections are going to be the the, the really big test because bad opinion polls, you know, they come and go. Yeah. It's midterm. They, should, they, they would normally be expected at this time, you know, this time in the cycle. Yeah, and they've been in power for a long time. I mean, Boris Johnson represents a kind of break for the Conservative Party, a sort of new and a new Tories, a, a, a sort of, you know, reset. But they have been in power well over a decade. Um, I think one of the things keeping them there is that the Labour Party has just been, you know, chronically incapable of, of mounting any kind, anything that looks like a serious challenge. That seems to be slowly improving, whether they can, you know, really maintain a poll lead that's based on anything but kind of dissatisfaction with Boris Johnson in the government, I think that remains to be seen. But, you know, it's it's looking like a closer contest. Yeah. And it, yet it's not, uh, it, you wouldn't call it an impressive poll, Lee, would you? That you go polling the Times, 38% Labour's on. That's, that's hardly a, a commanding lead, is it? No. And even, you know, the most popular Labour Labor figures. I mean, you could look at Sadiq Khan, or and and, and you know their their popularity is is so low. I mean, it's in the twenties. So I think we're we're a long way from the public being excited by um, you know a Labor leader, let alone you know an, an entire front bench that would replace uh, the government in office um, or is credible on economic policy. I want to talk to you about something else you've written about, which is the uh, the future of the pandemic now. The government is keen to talk about uh, us moving to uh, an endemic stage of this whole business. What does that actually mean for the UK? Can we can we say yet? Yeah, and for once, I think the government is absolutely right here. You know, we went from a situation where we had a highly transmissible virus that was conferring you know, pretty serious high levels of disease with many people ending up in hospital and, you know, a tragic number of deaths to having vaccines, which gave us enormous protection, treatments, uh, which, you know, while still bedeviled by supply problems, um, offer also another line of defense, to now the Omicron virus, which, you know, we withheld judgment for a while. We wanted to see what, you know, the data showed. It's now pretty clear that, you know, with natural immunity, with vaccinations, and with the way this this variant, um, the, the the different effects it has on the body and on the lungs, we have better defenses against a weaker virus, and that means policy needs to adjust to reflect that, and we can have a great deal more openness than we've had up to now. It seems like a lot of the problems with the pandemic, particularly in the health service, are not really to do with illness from COVID. They're to do with uh, staff absences, and that has to do with the isolation rules for people who test positive, many of whom are not actually ill. Do you think at some point we're going to have to grasp that nettle and perhaps get rid of isolation altogether or, or certainly limit it way beyond what we've already done? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, if, first of all, we're not enforcing self-isolation. Um, it is, 
it, it is very difficult to tell people who, you know, have effectively the symptoms of a cold or no symptoms at all to stay at home for five, six, seven, you know, in some places, uh, 10 days. Um, with, you know, we know that the Omicron variant is highly transmissible. We also know that masks work. So I think telling people to stay home if they have symptoms, uh, to test if they're unsure, to wear masks prudently, you know, those will be sufficient defenses against a weaker virus in a population that has very high levels of natural immunity. And in England, we're looking at 95 percent of the population has antibodies very high levels of vaccination um, and high booster rates. We're over 60% now, and that's climbing daily. So I think we can really revisit the self-isolation policies and, you know, other things uh, eventually. Um, I mean, work from home guidance also seems really um, overkill at this point. I think people should be allowed to go into the office, encouraged if they want to, um, you know, subject to agreement with their employers. And, you know, eventually we might have to look at mass testing and say, do we want to subsidize, you know, daily, weekly, tests for everyone or do we want to put it to parts of the population where a greater level of certainty and risk reduction makes more sense? Do we want to just have free mass testing at times when there are new variants or the virus rises? So, you know, this isn't a call for complacency. I think this needs to be monitored. Responses will vary according to the country and region, but really does mean that we need to rethink a lot of these things we've become used to. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.